1: Hey, everyone. Welcome to Alpha Chat, the business and economics podcast from The Financial Times. I'm Amy Keane. This week on the show, the ins and outs of the recent changes made to U.S. corporate tax policy. Matt Klein talks to economists and Council on Foreign Relations senior fellow Brad Setzer about the way U.S. and multinational corporations used to be taxed and how they'll be taxed under the new law. They also cover how all of these changes will have an effect on the macro economy and particularly on the balance of trade. I'll let Matt get right to it.
0: So you and I could talk about a lot of different things. But what we're going to talk about today is the corporate tax and how corporate tax policy affects US macroeconomic data. So for example, one of the things we've seen over the past few decades Or the emergence of these distortions or phenomena we can't explain in what's called the balance of payments, which tracks how money moves in and out of each country. And within the United States, one of the things that you found in your research, for example, is that corporate tax policy is behind some of these distortions. So one of the big things that happened at the end of last year was a change in U.S. corporate tax policy. So before we get into what the changes were and how we can expect them to affect U.S. data going forward, let's talk about what the world looked like as of, say, November, December 2017, and how those policies affected uh, U.S. economic macro data and corporate behavior. So the U.S.
2: had uh, uniquely a a system of, in theory, global taxation. So a U.S. company, if it earned uh, income anywhere around the world, In principle, it should have paid U.S. corporate income tax on its offshore earnings. Of course, there was a a credit for foreign tax actually paid. But in practice, the U.S. tax code allowed companies to defer their U.S. corporate tax liability as long as the funds were retained offshore. So what had happened over time was that U.S. companies became more skilled at uh, shifting either valuable intellectual property or the production of valuable components, like uh, the active ingredient in a pharmaceutical, to low tax jurisdictions, uh, those profits they earned, you know, sort of super profits in those low tax jurisdictions, and the uh, income that they earned piled up abroad, and it couldn't be returned to the U.S. without owing or paying their deferred tax liability. That over time became a over $2 trillion a sum, so it became quite large.
0: So just to clarify, we talk about retained earnings abroad. These earnings are for accounting purposes in subsidiaries in other countries like Ireland or the Caymans, but the money itself could be invested anywhere. That, is that right, Eric?
2: That's, that's completely true. So the easiest way to understand it is to lay out precisely what a company with offshore – in quotes – tax-deferred money could do. It can have that money in a U.S. bank account in the name of its offshore subsidiary. It can invest in a U.S. money market fund. can invest in U.S. treasuries. can invest in U.S. corporate bonds. There are really only a couple of things it can't do. It can't make a direct dividend payment to its parent, and it cannot buy the bonds of its parent and effectively transfer the funds directly uh, to the company's headquarters.
0: But the
2: bulk of the money was for all intents and purposes already in the U.S. financial markets.
0: So these effects are large enough that we can actually see them in the balance of payments. In other words, the U.S. macroeconomic data that tracks money coming in and out of the country. How exactly are we seeing these distortions show up? Well, you can see the distortions both on uh, you know, what you
2: might call the flow side in the current account data and on the stock side and on the financial inflow side. Probably the most obvious tell Uh, that sort of became significant over time was that there was this really large buildup of treasuries held in Ireland. And, you know, there's a lot of different possible explanations for it, but the most obvious is that that reflected the offshore tax-deferred profits of U.S. companies that were investing their spare cash back in the treasury market. If you look at the balance of payments, there's always been a little bit of a puzzle for the United States. The U.S. has run trade and current account deficits for a very long time. It has built up a stock of external debt. That stock of external debt is about 50% of U.S. GDP. So you would sort of expect that the U.S. would, on net, be making interest payments to the rest of the world. And it is. You know, we, uh, we actually do, if you just look at interest, make payments to the world. However, the dividend income, or the profit of U.S. companies, which on a flow basis is counted in the balance of payments, more than offsets the interest that the U.S. pays abroad. And you go, okay, well, maybe the U.S. has a lot more foreign direct investment abroad than there is direct foreign direct investment in the U.S. but That doesn't turn out to be the case. What drives the surplus on uh, income on direct investment is that the return on U.S. direct investment abroad is much higher than the return on foreign investment in the U.S. So we end up with an income surplus, and then you can disaggregate that further. The bulk of the income surplus comes from so-called reinvested earnings, so money that is not returned to the United States. It's retained in the offshore jurisdiction, and then the bulk of the excess earnings turns out to be in low-tax jurisdictions, the Ireland's, the Bermuda's, the Netherlands, the Singapore's, the Switzerland's of the world.
0: So just to be clear, this is the money we've been talking about, that for tax and accounting purposes is still outside the United States and considered reinvested earnings, but for all practical purposes is invested in the United States in dollar-denominated bonds. So you sort of sum all this up. The uh, U.S. does have, surprisingly
2: an income surplus in the balance of payments, Uh, but that income surplus seems to
0: reflect
2: profit shifting that has, as its counterpart, raised the trade deficit.
0: So in other words, the U.S. trade deficit looks a lot bigger than it really is because of this profit shifting which occurs for tax purposes. Now, this kind of gets technical, but
2: a lot of the offshore profits, if offshore subsidiaries were abolished, a lot of the income in the offshore profit could have been retained in headquarters. And instead of registering in the balance of payments as offshore profits, it would tend to register as the export of intellectual property. So there's been a, an important shift in how you know the, the international activities of the most successful U.S. companies show up in the balance of payments. It increasingly has shown up in an excess, in a surplus, in offshore tax-deferred under the old system income.
0: And a lot of this is very recent. I mean, if we're looking at the balance of payments figures, I mean, I know you've written about this and I've looked at this too, and it's really sort of within the past 20 years that this has has become sort of a, a sizable factor. What do you think kind of explains that timing?
2: You know, it really takes off after 2000. I think there were probably some technical changes to the U.S. Uh, corporate tax code that uh, made it easier to transfer intellectual property to a wholly owned subsidiary. So there was probably some technical angles. And then I think as one company uh, did it successfully, other companies followed suit, uh, and then it sort of became the norm. Um, and so essentially between 2000 and roughly 2010, uh, you see a, a very significant rise in the uh, the profits U.S. uh, multinationals are reporting in the low tax jurisdictions.
0: And it it kind of reaches a level where you almost can't ignore it. So these profits that we're talking about are now being counted in the balance of payments as hundreds of billions of dollars a year of foreign direct investment income coming from a handful of places, places like Bermuda, the Caymans, Luxembourg, and so forth. And it's really much more likely to be a function of tax avoidance rather than any kind of reflection of underlying economic reality.
2: So if you just look at the reinvested earnings in low-tax jurisdictions of U.S. multinationals, it's around $200 billion. If you include all their earnings in low-tax jurisdictions, you can get a little closer to $300 billion. So you're looking at 1% to 1.5% of U.S. GDP. I think this has sort of become a consensus estimate.
0: So what are some of the techniques that companies use to do this profit shifting? You mentioned for pharmaceuticals, for example, they might manufacture the active ingredient in a certain place, like Ireland. But a lot of the stuff we're talking about are intangibles, things like intellectual property or brand licensing, like we see with Starbucks. Can you give us a sense of how that works? So, uh, you know, really the Senate Investigative
2: Committee uh, under Carl Levin did all the work. So there's a report on uh, Apple and a report on Microsoft that more or less outlined the, the commonly used structures at the time. And obviously structures evolve. But the simplest, easiest-to-understand structure would be the one most often used in the past in the tech industry, and it works more like this. A successful uh, software company sets up a wholly-owned offshore subsidiary for two uh, in a low-tax jurisdiction. That subsidiary enters into a uh, cost-share agreement with the parent, whereby it will pay a defined percentage of the parent's research and development cost, say 60%. And in return, it will get the profits on the firm's offshore profits. So the non-US profits on the firm's intellectual property. So for a company like Apple, the uh, 60% share of the firm's research and development budget is a sum that is ranged from sort of two to six billion and the profit stream that it gets from Apple's overseas sales is more like now $40 So it uh, has the effect of transferring uh, a very large sum offshore.
0: So these kinds of tricks, just to be clear, they don't reduce the bill that, that U.S. companies would pay on their U.S. profits, right? It's only the profits they would generate from exports. Is that a fair characterization?
2: For the tech industry, it generally only uh, reduces what you might think of as their the profit they should pay on their, uh, the export of the intellectual property they create in the U.S. With the pharmaceutical sector, I think there's some evidence that uh, profits made in the U.S. on the sale of pharmaceutical products are also shifted abroad. So I think it varies uh, depending on the industry. Uh, but if a, a pharmaceutical firm is producing its high-value molecules, In Ireland, for sale globally, including to the U.S., that provides uh, uh, the basis for moving some U.S. profit offshore as well.
0: So this relates very much to a topic that was a big deal a few years ago, which was inversions. Can you explain how this relates to that? Well, I mean,
2: an an inversion would be uh, a company uh, effectively buying an offshore company uh, and turning itself from an American company into an Irish company. And then uh, its profits would be taxed, not according to the global, but with the option of deferment, U.S. tax system, but under the low Irish tax rate. Uh, And, you know, I think that measures have been introduced that uh, uh, plus with the new lower tax rate to to limit
0: that. So this seems like a good opportunity to talk about what's changed, because obviously this all applies to the world of the past where we had a 35 percent corporate tax rate, which is much higher than other countries. We had a global system, a system of essentially unlimited deferral of profits earned abroad. But now, all these things are a lot different. So give us a sense of what are the things that change and how does that affect what everything's going to look like going forward?
2: Well, I mean, essentially, all three things that you uh, described have changed. The t- U.S. tax rate is no longer 35, it's 21. There is no longer deferral. The U.S. system is no longer global, it's territorial. So... Income earned offshore in principle can be returned to the U.S. with no uh, no U.S. tax liability. So as a result, there is no need for deferral. So the entire system has changed. As a result of these changes, there was a risk, and there still is a risk, that moving towards a territorial system only incentivizes companies to locate uh, their intellectual property in places and locations that have an even lower uh tax rate in the US so there's a set of new provisions that were introduced to uh limit to a degree companies ability to exploit uh, a territorial system the most important is a global minimum tax on intangibles income uh set at half the 21% rate this is this global minimum should capture the profits that the tech companies uh, have located in no tax jurisdictions so that's uh, one, one change. But it's at a, you know, a quite low rate. It has some other subsidiary effects because it, the way it is calculated uh, is on your intangible income, which is a residual after there has been an imputed return on your tangible assets, which has the w- weird effect of encouraging you to move more tangible assets abroad in order to reduce your intangible tax.
0: Okay. So let's let's take a moment and break that down into its, in its pieces because it sounds like this global minimum intangible income tax is not a territorial system. So let's first explain sort of how that works and then all the other pieces you were describing. Right. So in, while the U.S. has moved to a territorial system,
2: it has retained a small aspect of global tax but at a uh, significantly reduced rate. But that global tax – only applies to intangible income, so income that is not tied to a physical asset, not tied to a manufacturing plant, income that reflects uh, software rights, branding, that kind of thing, and that will now be taxed as the income is earned at a uh, 10.5% rate with a partial 80% deduction for taxes actually paid abroad tangible income, the income you earn on a factory uh, located abroad, uh, on uh, real estate that you own abroad, is not taxed in the United States under a territorial system. And In order to calculate what your intangible tax income is, the way that is done is that you are uh, attributed a 10% or so return on your tangible assets abroad. And then any excess above that is deemed your intangible income.
0: So just to be clear, the new law is essentially setting a benchmark for what constitutes a normal level of profits. And if a company is reporting a rate of return on an asset that's above this benchmark of normal, they have to pay an extra tax penalty with the idea being this will discourage the kinds of profit shifting that we've seen being commonplace over the past 20, 30 years.
2: Uh, that is how I understand it. I'm not a tax lawyer. Sure. There may be additional twists, but that's kind of the idea.
0: And so you were saying one potential challenge here or unintended side effect is would actually encourage companies, particularly tech companies that only have intangible assets or mostly only have intangible assets abroad to actually shift physical assets to reduce their taxes. Was that something that you think we, we're going to be seeing relatively shortly? Big new Microsoft research centers in Ireland, things like that?
2: I don't know if you're going to see it in the very near term. But I would expect over the next five years, there will be evidence uh, that uh, some tangible assets have been shifted abroad. Yeah, you know, The easiest sector for that to happen will be in the pharmaceutical sector. So it seems to incentivize more offshore production, not less on, on the pharma side.
0: So I don't want to make it so much a thing where you have to get in someone else's head. But why do you think people supported this kind of tax reform or change who believed that this would actually encourage more domestic production in the U.S. rather than more offshoring? Because it sounds like it's doing the opposite.
2: Well, I think there are are people who genuinely believe that uh, with a tax rate of around 20%, the overall incentive to offshore will uh, go down. Um, And I think there are people who genuinely believe in the principle of territoriality. with a territorial principle, there's no reason why a firm should be uh, prevented uh, from locating production uh, where it wants to globally, and there's no uh, residual U.S. tax liability associated with that. Now, why did the administration not make this an issue? I don't know. I think it's probably in part a function of the fact that the bulk of the bill was written on the Hill, and then I think it is in part a function of the sense, which I don't agree with, but the sense that eliminating Uh, or or allowing the trapped profits abroad to come back to the United States would have a very powerful uh, impact and encourage investment in the U.S. We should probably mention uh, the special low rate on the export of intangibles, which is set at just above 13%. Now, this is intended to uh, make it more attractive to retain your intellectual property in the United States uh, because you could get this well below 21% tax rate, I think the risk is that the rate is set at above the global minimum on intangibles, and so a uh, a company would logically perf- still prefer uh, a ten and a half percent rate to uh, the 13% rate. But this is an an important provision in the bill, uh, one which also potentially creates some perverse incentives, largely because you would uh, rather uh, export uh, intangibles than uh, sell to a U.S. company. And one way in which you could do that is to sell the rights to produce your pharmaceutical product to an offshore uh, company and thereby generate uh, export receipts, which you wouldn't had you contracted with an American manufacturer. So I think it's another quite important provision.
0: So, so far, we've been talking about rules that affect U.S. companies and how the behavior of U.S. companies has affected U.S. economic data and how the rules are changing in such a way to discourage the kinds of profit shifting by American companies that's occurred in the past. But there's also a whole set of rules that are supposed to change the behavior and incentives of non-U.S. companies that operate in the U.S. Kind of explain what those are.
2: There's a a base erosion anti-abuse tax, the BEAT which applies to transactions between related parties. And so the U.S.-owned subsidiary of a foreign multinational would in effect face a minimum tax on certain payments uh, back to its parent, which is clearly designed to make sure that uh, foreign multinationals pay more U.S. tax. One of the key things to remember is we've emphasized in this conversation uh, that the various uh, techniques that U.S. companies used to move profits offshore. Foreign companies had a strong set of incentives not to report large profits in the U.S. Uh, because of the large profit in the U.S. and their U.S. sub would be taxed at the relatively high U.S. rate. So, part of the reason why the U.S. was generating a surplus on uh, direct investment was that uh, foreign companies appeared to have a very uh, low profit rate on their U.S. operations. And so this these provisions were designed to uh, address uh, the various techniques that foreign companies use to move profit out of their U.S. subsidiary.
0: So my understanding is one of the ways they did that was that they took advantage of the fact that with a high tax rate, the deductibility of interest becomes very attractive. And so U.S. subsidiaries of foreign companies would carry much of the debt of the total group. Is that, is that a fair characterization? That's fair. And now I guess that wouldn't be very attractive, but between the lower rate and the cap on interest and the additional tax payment, that's going to be pretty rough for them. Potentially. This, this was a real change
2: to the international provisions of the uh, U S tax code. And I, I, I wouldn't characterize having to pay 20% on your U S operations as uh, especially rough. You know, I think, I think it is just, it is, it is reasonable to try to uh, make it uh, difficult for profitable foreign companies in the U.S. if you're operating under a territorial uh, principle to make it difficult for them to uh, transfer profit offshore.
0: I guess potentially there's even a sense in which if there are foreign companies that sell in the U.S. that didn't take advantage of some of these tricks in the past, they would actually be better off because of the cut in the tax rate. That would be fair. So. What do you think the net effect of all this is going to be in terms of the balance of payments and the trade account? Because it seems like there's a lot of different moving parts here, and it'll be interesting to sort of see how that plays out.
2: I mean, it will be very interesting. I think uh, different people have had different, uh, very different forecasts. Prominent uh, Wall Street research shops have ar- argued uh, that the special low rate on uh, the export of intangibles and the global minimum will create incentives that will lead to the reversal of some of these tax structures that move profits offshore, and that as these tax structures are reversed, what previously had been offshore income will show up in the U.S. balance of payments as the export of services, and so the measured trade deficit will fall. That is uh, one hypothesis. The alternative hypothesis, which is the one I uh, share, is that the provisions, the the global minimum, is set at a fairly low level. And therefore, it will continue to be uh, attractive for companies to maintain offshore uh, subsidiaries. Uh, and as a result, not all that much will change in the aggregate. And that uh, if anything changes, it will be uh, in, in a negative direction uh, as, say, pharmaceutical companies locate even more production abroad to raise their offshore tangible tax base and reduce their uh, overall payments. So there there are diametrically opposed theories about how the changes will impact the portion of the trade balance that could be uh, impacted by profit shifting in the key profit shifting sectors. Uh, There's a, a separate debate. About how a increase in the fiscal deficit will impact, uh, the trade balance. And I think there directionally, everyone intends to agree that the bigger your fiscal deficit, the bigger your trade deficit. It's just a question of the size of the effect and whether the uh, changes in that are induced by and reflect corporate decisions about where to locate taxable profit will overwhelm the straightforward bigger fiscal deficit.
0: So just to clarify, if you combine the income payments and the trade balance, you look at sort of the, the current account in total, there isn't really a sense that that is going to change much one way or the other unless there is sort of this overall fiscal impact that leads to just more capital flows from abroad and more spending domestically. Is that fair? That, that ultimately is about the composition of the current account rather than any kind of level changes. That's
2: correct. The distortions right now, at least in my view, have had the effect of increasing the offshore income of U.S. companies. So that's a positive adjustment in the current account and having an opposite effect on the measured trade balance. So lowering U.S. exports on a dollar for dollar basis. So if that's true, when you shift uh, from offshore Profits to uh, exports of intangibles. The aggregate current account uh, doesn't change. There's just a shift in the composition. The same is also true with the import of pharmaceuticals from a wholly owned uh, subsidiary in Ireland. Uh, it raises uh, US imports, so that's negative, but it also raises the profits of the US company operating in Ireland, which is a positive. So, uh, you know, and basically the, the tax related distortions impact the composition of the current account not the level
0: so this presumably will also have some big impacts potentially on Irish GDP because so much of that in the past few years has come from either shifts in the location of assets or the profits of companies by very large amounts relative to what's a very small country so I mean what, what sort of your your guess on how that's going to play out
2: well if the large revision in Ireland's uh, GDP and balance of payments in 2015, mm-hmm reflects the uh, reincorporation of uh, Apple uh, as a Irish company for tax purposes, though with a set of special provisions, as the New York Times has reported, uh, then it essentially, Apple's decision about whether to maintain uh, its uh, Irish tax subsidiary going forward will have a tremendous uh, impact. Uh, And so, you know, we'll be able to see that. And then, you know, we'll be able to see how uh, the pharmaceutical sector responds. And that will also have an impact on uh, Irish GDP. I think, you know, one of the things that's important to remember is that uh, for tax centers, gross domestic product becomes a rather inaccurate uh, measure of actual real activity. And there's a huge discrepancy in some sense between GDP And uh, gross national product. Uh, And that discrepancy uh, reflects tax uh, effects.
0: Gross national product, to be clear, is the income earned by citizens of a country as opposed to people who happen to be in the country. And that's the difference where if you have a foreign operation in a country that supposedly generates a lot of profits, that will be much larger. Correct. Is there any risk that other countries will react to the changes in the US corporate tax regime and do other things, either to maintain their own sort of set of competitiveness or to penalize what they think of as the U.S. trying to level the playing field, take advantage or or whatever. Is there either out of Europe or other countries?
2: Well, I think, you know, there will be some pressure on uh, tax havens to become even more tax haveny because uh, for the purposes of the global minimum, not all foreign tax actually paid is now uh, deductible. So you will you will face pressure presumably to get closer to Bermuda zero. I think some high tax jurisdictions will face high tax by comparison with the United States uh, will face pressure from their own firms to lower their corporate tax rate. So you already are seeing that pressure uh, in Germany. And then I think there'll be an, a broader debate about whether the 10% tax, the global minimum, uh, that is, the U.S. is, uh, charging on U.S. tech companies is the right amount of tax that these companies should pay on their profits in, uh, major countries. Uh, so if the major tech companies are able to shift their profits, uh, to zero tax jurisdictions where they, the only tax they are paying is the U.S. global minimum, uh, that doesn't leave any revenue for anyone else. And it leaves uh, those companies with a very low 10%-ish global tax rate on their offshore activities.
0: On the separate side of things, I know we alluded to this a little bit with the, the fiscal impact here. But to what extent do you think that the change in sort of the headline corporate tax rate would affect investment decisions domestically in the U.S. apart from profit shifting, apart from intangibles, sort of the real economy effects?
2: The one thing that I think I have learned from following the debate is that uh, just looking at the headline tax is a little misleading, uh, that rules around expensing are really quite important, and that with full expensing, uh, the corporate profit tax becomes a tax on your excess profit. Surprise, you know, profits above a return that you would normally expect. And so since we've had bonus depreciation in the past, that has uh, offset to some significant extent, the relatively high U.S. corporate tax rate. The biggest impact with the reform may be, in the short run, the move towards full expensing, not the reduction in the headline rate. Uh, But then over time, expensing fades out. Uh, So I think you end up with a lot of very uh, complex and offsetting effects. I share the view of those who don't expect to see uh, that large of an impact.
0: So I think last question for now is, what would you have done if, you know, faced with sort of the situation that we saw at the end of last year in terms of how corporates and multinationals did their tax affairs, what would the kind of changes in the U.S. tax code would you have liked to have seen that would have dealt with that in a way you thought would have been sort of efficient and, and fair?
2: I, I would favor a system of global taxation, retaining a system of global taxation, uh, lowering the rate uh, and ending deferment. So uh, you pay the headline rate on profit in the U.S. and on profit abroad. However, in that system, you would allow any tax actually paid abroad to be deducted. So in that, you know, a system of full global taxation with no deferment and the ability to deduct foreign tax actually paid would mean that if you succeed at shifting your income to Ireland or Bermuda or uh, any other, you know, Malta, Jersey, pick your preferred jurisdiction, you would pay the difference between the local tax rate and the U.S. tax rate, and then you're free to do whatever you want with the money. So that's uh, a way uh, – would, would have had the effect of equalizing the tax rate on the offshore income of U.S. multinationals and the, their onshore income, so eliminating incentives to engage in tax games. If the rate, overall rate, is relatively high in order to make such a system work, uh, you need strong rules limiting inversions.
0: Very good. Brad Sesser, thank you for coming.
2: Great. Great to be here. Thanks.
0: All right. Now we're going to conclude with our long-form recommendations. I'm going to go first. Uh, recently, in the Financial Times, of all places, Alan Beatty had a really good overview of the British farming sector and the changes that might come after they leave the EU and the end of the Common Agricultural Policy. Brad, what about you? Uh, so for Christmas, my father gave me a
2: book by uh, Yuval Harari called *Sapiens*, which is you know the,
0: the history of
2: our species, how Homo sapiens uh, came to dominate the Earth and in el- the process eliminating some of our uh, near relatives. It's been a, a very fascinating. Thing.
1: And that's the end of Matt's conversation with Brad Setzer. Let us know what you think. You can send us an email. You can also record a voice memo and email it to us at alphachat at ft.com. If you have a question or a comment for us, we might play it on our next episode. Please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people find out about us. Thanks to Matt and Brad for this week's conversation. And thanks to you for listening. We'll see you here next week for another episode of Alpha Chat.